Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hello, and welcome to Episode 8 of Leadership in Extraordinary Times. I'm Peter Tufano, the Dean of the University of Oxford's Said Business School. This series has two components. First, we hear from world-leading academics who can help us understand what's going on and how to deal with the health, economic, and humanitarian crises. But we also hear from leaders at the front, women and men in positions of leadership in these extraordinary times. In this episode, I'm joined by Jacqueline Novogratz, a former Wall Street banker, founder of Acumen and Acumen Academy, and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Blue Sweater. Her latest book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, explores how we might use this moment of uncertainty to enact a moral revolution, one that asks us to move from a system that puts profit at the center to one that has humanity and the earth at its heart. I'm proud to say that Jacqueline is also a member of Said Business School's Global Leadership Council. Through Acumen, Jacqueline has advanced the concept of patient capital, attracting investors prepared to accept higher risk and lower returns to support entrepreneurs with sustainable solutions to the world's biggest problems. She's a pioneer in the world of impact investing. Her work straddles both nonprofits and for-profits. She's a both-and thinker and a role model. Manifesto for a Moral Revolution is a book of our times, a manual for how we should build back businesses in a just way when we emerge from this pandemic. We talk about her life and work and why Now is the time to implement a new moral framework to underpin business activity. I began by asking Jacqueline, given she's so busy with acumen, why did she take the time to write Manifesto for a Moral Revolution? (laughs) You know, like you, as an educator, um, ideas really matter. I really believe that. And In many ways, I've been working on trying to make change in the world for 35 years, 20 almost with acumen. And that's given me the chance to understand what change means, how you build it. Um, But I've also worked with probably a thousand uh, change agents, as you said, both in the for-profit and in the nonprofit space, some of whom have actually changed not only companies, but systems, nations. And when I started to think about what separated those that actually did change the systems, it didn't come down to whether they were using the tools of capitalism or moving in government, but it came down to their character. And so I essentially decided to write a love letter to this next generation and to actually all of us, anyone who wants to make change in this fragile, flawed and beautiful world of ours. And this one is it. And you did it. So you just used a word that maybe we'll cue off that word and the word is character. A lot of the manifesto deals with the topic that isn't discussed so much in business and business schools, character. Um, When you started in banking, character was probably drilled into you into the four C's Mm -hmm. of lending, character, capacity, collateral, and capital. Why do you think that business doesn't talk about character so much? And then how do we reinvigorate a discussion of what character is all about? It's such a great question. Somehow in the last 30 years, we've gotten so uncomfortable with words like character, virtue, dignity, moral. And I've actually been thinking about that. You and I are about the same age. And I, I was in business school when the, right when the Berlin Wall fell down. Capitalism had won. 
Steve Jobs was on the stage telling us about the technology revolution that was about to come. And um, I remember in my ethics class being taught that under the, the, the law of Milton Friedman, it wasn't just our fiduciary responsibility, it was our ethical responsibility to maximize shareholder wealth, which I found confusing even then. Um, and so somehow in doing that and in seeing that these two forces of capitalism and technology, Peter, did release incredible energy and innovation in the world, did lift people out of poverty, we somehow raised these two forces to the ranks of religion. And now I think we're looking around and seeing the dark side, which every force has, which is our individualism, our div divisiveness, our inequality, climate change. And so we have to move to this place where we actually are changing the new system, which puts our humanity and the earth at the center and not just profit. Doing that is going to require a lot of character. So I'd like to spend most of the time talking about those certain character traits that you have identified are so important, but I think it's important for us to back up. I know the work of Acumen pretty well, but some of the people who are listening may not know it as well. And you briefly said, oh, I've worked with a thousand firms and all across the world for the last couple of decades. So in some sense, this book is based on an evidence base. And when you read it, and you should read it, you know, what you'll find is individual stories of of entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs who are doing amazing work. But maybe before we get into the lessons, just provide the audience with some sense of the work that you've been doing in Acumen over these years, as in some sense, the research that underlies all this book. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, the Acumen essentially, I started it to change the way the world tackles poverty and had this big idea of patient capital at its center. Patient capital, we would raise philanthropy, we would give it away as long-term investment, 10, 15 year investment in entrepreneurs that were trying to solve big problems of poverty. We've expanded to the right kind of capital and the right kind of character. Um, and that means that not only do we have about 125 million of patient capital investing, philanthropic backed in about 130 companies, but we also have three for-profit funds for another 150 million that can help take those companies that have moved to the growth stage of their development into the next level. Um, some of our companies now have reached 100 million people and some have failed. But along that journey, we've learned a great deal. We also saw how we needed more than capital, we needed talent. Any investor learns that uh, in the markets in which we work where people make two, three dollars a day, that becomes even more acute. Mm -hmm. So we also started a university reimagined a series of fellows programs around the world now with an online school for social change called Acumen Academy. Great. So based on all of that experience, you, you've kind of abstracted a set of things that uh, individuals need, but the system needs. And a word that you, or a term that you use throughout this book is moral rejuvenation. And you have a very clear meaning of what that means. What does moral rejuvenation mean to you? Well, first to just take apart the word moral, I don't mean a prescribed set of rules handed down by some higher authority. By moral, I mean a move away from a worldview that believes that whatever is good for me must be good for you, to one that insists on starting with serving others and even putting other stakeholders first and then building a world in which everyone can participate. And so that's the real shift in the frame is to 
claim, reclaim, and renew actually ancient values that have always been at the heart of a definition of a good society. But again, in the context of an interdependent world where we have many, many different cultures, many, many different religions and non-religions at play, that morality must come from all of us. And so one of the kind of muscles that you talk about that we need is something called moral imagination. Mm. Uh, what do you mean by moral imagination? And maybe you can give us some examples where you've seen it play a critical role in centering an organization's work. So the moral imagination um, is the humility to see the world as it is and the audacity to imagine what it could be. A lot of this book is about values, intentions. And um, essentially it starts with empathy, but I have learned that empathy by itself reinforces the status quo. It too often just sits with inaction. So empathy that then leads to immersion or getting proximate to a problem to understand it. The third part of the moral imagination is underst understanding the system that keeps a situation in its place. And then the fourth is action. So it's really a very active noun, um, if you can have an active noun. Hmm. Um, an example would be uh, Sam and, um, and it's kind of our unicorn, but Sam and um, Goldman and Ned Tozum, Sam saw a neighbor have his house almost burned down when his kerosene lamp, which is the way at the time a billion and a half people across the globe got their energy like we did in the 19th century. And he decided that there had to be a way to get electricity to the billion and a half without it so that they didn't have to rely on kerosene. Huge dream, eradicate kerosene, audacity. But the humility was he was dealing with people that made two, three dollars a day where there were no, where there was no infrastructure, there was a lot of bureaucracy, there was no trust um, and no financing. And so Acumen invests in very special kinds of entrepreneurs and they went forth anyway and we accompanied them now for, we're in our 13th year, but they, that moral imagination fueled their drive as they got closer to the customers, they used the market as a listening device, they understood what their customers needed they also understood why the status quo existed and how they had to take it on, with whom they had to partner. And so ultimately, this is the company that has now brought light and electricity to 100 million people. And they've really jump-started the energy, off-grid energy revolution. And so moral imagination so sounds like a soft skill. It's probably the hardest and most critical skill that we need in this time of crisis as we start to reimagine what the world could be. So in that description of delight, and I want to stick with this one for a while, you use some language in there that has special meaning in the book. You talked about accompaniment, and you also talked about the market as a listening uh, device. Um, in the book, you describe how actually delight had to do that. Their first kind of products weren't quite right, and, and they were listening very carefully to customers. Can you share some of these stories? Because I think they give some uh, definition to this concept that could seem abstract to some of the listeners. Yeah, so I actually started Acumen because I started my career on Wall Street and I'd seen the power of markets, but I had also seen how so often markets can overlook and, and sometimes exploit the poor. And so then I moved to Rwanda where I started a microfinance bank, but I was swimming in a sea of aid. And I saw how so much of our grant making and, and development assistance uh, created dependency rather than enabling people to solve their own problems. And so I 
the market sat at the heart of Acumen because it was a listening device. And what I meant by that and mean by that even more so today is that if you give people a gift, first of all, you give the one that you think that they need, and then they will tell you what they think you want them to say. And so there's no real truth in the relationship between customer and in this case, benefactor or provider. When you sell people something, even if it's at a subsidized price, you have a much more honest conversation. And the story I love to tell with Delight was a little bit further into the company's progress when they actually had a wonderful light that had two settings, higher and lower. And I went to go meet this grandmother who probably made a dollar, two dollars a day, very, very poor. But she and her daughter had found financing to buy a $30 solar lamp. And in one of those houses where even in the daytime, when you close the door, you felt like it was the middle of the night, she showed us how this light had changed her life. I was with this big guy from Australia and I said to her, Teresia, um, why don't you tell Mr. Small what you like about the light? And she said what I had seen a thousand times in, in villages and talked about all the good things. And then I said, tell, me, tell him how he could improve this light. And she put her hand, her hand on her hip and kind of moved her head in a cocky manner and said, well, number one, you know, if I could charge my cell phone at the same time that I charge my light, I could have a business. Number two, I can't reach it. If I could put the light above me, then you, it would have more light in my room, but there's no string to hang my light on. And she started going through four different ways that Delight could improve her. And, and I looked at this tiny woman, not standing there talking as a beggar or a supplicant, but as an equal to this man who was not standing with the arrogance or the, uh, the certainty that I'd seen so many well-intended donors have when they were going to see their work in action. And I thought, this is, this is why I do this work because this, there's the seeds of the transformation of not only her life, but of these two individuals as they interact in real ways across all these lines of difference. And, and, and to me, it, it's a reminder that you know, we are each other's destiny. If we would just stop to listen to each other. And, um, and that's really the heart of the moral imagination. Accompaniment, it comes from a Jesuit term which essentially means to walk besides. It's I'll hold up a mirror to you. I'll help you see um, the light inside of you, your best self, sometimes more than you probably see it in yourself. And all of us who have succeeded, I think, have been accompanied by at least one person. If you thought about it, it could be a teacher, a parent, a sibling, a mentor, a boss, a good boss. But often people who've lived at the margins don't have that. And so as we build access to markets, as we build opportunities, so must we help people have the capabilities to actually utilize that access. And there is no skill like accompaniment. It's become so important to us at Acumen that after a little bit of resistance when we first, when I first had the idea, we've actually changed our post-investing moniker to accompaniment. Um, and it's really transformed the way that we work with our companies after we've made the investment and, and it's made all the difference. So listening and accompaniment are important characteristics for individuals, but you also said that the market, the market is a listening device as well. 
when does that market tone deaf? When is that market just deaf? Forget about tone deaf. When is the market not hearing the things that it needs to hear? Well, number one, when the, the market doesn't have the patience to be creative and try to understand even how to serve people who've been left out of it in the first place. Number two, when the market is highly distorted, which tends to be throughout the low-income communities. I used to think low-income communities were market economies, and what I've learned is that they are political economies. If you're looking at any low-income community anywhere on the globe, you're also interacting with a whole host of other players that have their hands in the business of business, government, religious leaders, family leaders, political mafias often, slum lords, and that makes the market unbelievably cacophonous and difficult to learn how to navigate. And that's also um, why patient capital and accompaniment become so critical to building real solutions um, that enable change. Patient capital, that's where I wanna go next. We live in a world where the average stock holding is anywhere from a few days to six months to a year. It's so short. So what does it mean to have patient capital? What is patient capital? And then how do we move from where we are now, which is a world where money is chasing deals, to a world where the mainstream of capital is much more patient? And I think this goes back to the moral revolution, Peter. The problem with this short-term thinking, and I, I think the whole business community is coming around to that, is that we're making decisions that are bad for all of us, certainly in the long term. Even if they're good for shareholders in the short term, I think increasingly we're finding that for shareholders over the long term, this short-termism is actually killing us. And Paul Pullman's now the chair of your um, advisory, and it's so exciting. But you know, one of the first things he did at Unilever was to say, I'm not doing quarterly meetings. And that was revolutionary. That was, for me, an act of moral revolution. What I have found, and when we started Acumen, I thought seven to 10 years was surely patient enough. But when you are taking on a status quo and take the delight example again, the kerosene business is big business and it is lucrative business. And so you want to bring in solar to people who make two, three dollars a day who do not have voice. You have to learn how to take on the kerosene mafias and the diesel mafias. You have to learn how to build trust. You have to learn to actually create the financing mechanism so that the people could borrow to get the lights. That does not happen overnight and it requires trying and failing and trying again. So patient ended up being 10 to 15 years. Now, interestingly, patient capital is not stupid capital. And I had that conversation way too many times over the last two decades where we'd have a co-investor who wanted and had every intention of being patient capital because a lot of impact investors want to do well by doing good. But when the chips were down and the company got in trouble, which the companies do get in trouble, they wanted out and they wanted Acumen to take them out. And they would call me and say, you know, Jacqueline, you, t you, you use all these moral words. You talk about love. Your job is to take us out. And I'd say, no, no, no. We're patient capital, we're not stupid capital. And part of our job is getting this company to a point where the market can take it to the, another level. And so it's holding this tension of generosity, yes, 
and accountability. And that again comes down to character because our financial system right now only rewards short-term thinking and a focus on shareholders. And so as much as we talk about stakeholder models, until we have enough role models that are creating inclusive business models that we celebrate, we're gonna to see too much business as usual. And that is why one, we need moral revolution, and two, it's got to be all of us, our corporate leaders, our government leaders, our nonprofit leaders, and that's where the role of media, the business schools, all of us also comes in. So as you talk to investors about the idea of patience and the way that you've defined it, are there certain pools of investors that are more open to this? You know, if we think about traditional definitions, you know, mutual funds have daily liquidity, maybe they can't be so patient, you know, pension plans in theory have long liabilities. Are there classes of investors because I can imagine it's an individual thing. Certain individuals understand this concept and resonate with it, but are there certain institutional structures that make it easier or harder for institutions and investors to be patient? Oh, sure. And I think that, I think that the next phase of impact investing is really segmenting the market. I'd, I dream the day when we don't need patient or impact as modifiers, but that all investment is purpose-driven and does no harm. Until that day, uh, I think the, the wisdom lies in recognizing the spectrum of capital, that I would never go to a pension fund for earliest stage kind of investing that Acumen uh, invests in. That requires uh, philanthropists who are willing to put up pools of philanthropic of money, I don't care what the currency is, philanthropic money to back investments that have a very high risk, high risk profile and a low return profile. Uh, but that any money that comes back to us will be reinvested in an innovation. So for the philanthropist, they see for every dollar they invest, we move another five, six. Acumen has already moved almost a billion dollars from that philanthropic pool. Then there's that stage of growth for impact investing and what's been thrilling to early stage impact investing. So you still don't see many of the institutional players, but that's changing. And so in our Kawasaki Off-Grid Energy Fund, not only do you have the Green Climate Fund, so a development finance institution, but an AXA. So you start to see larger mainstream financial institutions that are really interested in solving problems like off-grid energy as well. Many of the, the next level of institutions that are still really looking at ESG they are still looking for much higher returns and their definition of market return does not correspond to the kind of risk that this sort of change requires. So, but it's still a big, big step. Just ESG is, is an important step as well. So I think that my dream is to start seeing a much clearer articulation and segmentation of a spectrum of capital that can attract and be honest with investors as well as with the companies they might support about the type of risk they're seeking, the type of financial and impact that they are seeking as well. And, um, and so we have to get better at measuring what matters, um, the, the social impact and bring with it as much rigor as we do to the financial impact too. 
we developed a, a system of measuring social impact that started with the, the people we serve, the customers of our companies, where we can text five, 10,000 customers simultaneously, ask them a series of questions from which we can deduce so much about not only MPS scores, whether they like the product or would refer it to somebody else, but also, you know, with, with electricity, did they, how much later are they staying up? Are their children studying more? What is happening to their health, et cetera? And we're getting extraordinary feedback, so much so that many other organizations like DFID and Omidyar Foundation and increasingly for-profit impact funds were asking us to do their impact metrics. And so we spun off that unit into a separate for-profit company called 60 Decibels, which is just going gangbusters. And it's been really exciting to watch uh, 60 Decibels as a, we hope, um, an increasingly important contributor to the field of impact investing. In some sense, what 60 Decibels does is to measure success, however defined. The book has a big section about needing to redefine success. You gave a great example of something called the Feast of Merit that I wasn't aware of until you referenced in the book. Um, and you make the point that success is often determined in, or defined in material terms, but it needs to change. How do we begin to redefine what success means at an individual level, an organizational level, and a systems level? If you want to tell people what a Feast of Merit is, you can clarify that before they read the book. So just quickly, the, the Feast of Merit comes out of Nagaland, which is a very, very poor um, region in Northeast India and an extraordinary part of the country. But um, essentially, after the harvest, the person who had gotten the biggest harvest would be expected to give the whole thing to the community with this enormous feast. And in return, he'd be given a beautiful cloak and his house would be adorned so that forever he would be seen as a man of great honor within the community. And it was a, a huge sense of pride to have the Feast of Merit. And um, when I heard that, I was thinking about the stories we tell ourselves, how important narrative is, and that our heroes in other periods of our history have been people who changed the world. And somehow over the last few decades, our heroes have become defined by money, power, and fame. And so it should be no surprise to us that our best students are being channeled in those tracks where they know they will be held in the highest acclaim by money, power, or celebrity. And how you shift that, again, starts with the decision inside, which is a character decision. Because in the short term, until enough of us move there, you're going against the grain. And I think that our definition of success to create a world in which we all can prosper must be one that we focus on, not how much money we make for ourselves, but how are we in enabling other people to prosper? How are we enabling other people to contribute in the world? And so if we defined it by the amount of human energy, if you will, that your actions release into the world, we'd have a very different metric. And in fact, if we change the golden rule, not changed it, but enhanced it from to whom much is given, much is expected, to one that looks at whether you're giving more to the world than you're taking from the world. And if we each held to that, I think we'd move from a world that is too focused on the I to one that actually does look at all of us and is um, more just, more humane, and um, more inclusive.
So that's a great kind of endpoint for us all to be. But right now in the corporate world, at least, even the baby step from the Milton Friedman idea of shareholders to stakeholders is proving to be a big leap. So maybe some thoughts about where the corporate world is in this journey, especially if you think that the measures that you're talking about should be the ultimate measures of success for individuals or for organizations. And I think there's a twofold answer to that. We work with a lot of corporations. And when I think about moral leadership and the importance of courage in moral leadership, Peter, some of my real heroes are working at middle management jobs in the corporate sector because it is so hard often to go against the grain that even if they hear a true desire on the part of a CEO to move toward a stakeholder model, at the end of the day, they're still being judged in terms of their own career by their PL, period. And so those that go against the grain uh, do so often at a real personal price. What excites me and where I think there's real opportunity to start making shift is twofold. One, where we're seeing real partnering with social between social enterprises and corporations. One quick example is a company called Azahar, which is in Colombia, which is in the book. Essentially, the company has turned the capitalist model in terms of how coffee has always been priced on its head. When I was in Rwanda, 85% of farmers were essentially wiped out when coffee prices went from $3 to 80 cents a pound. That's still happening. Futures markets really prices coffee on a global basis, regardless of what's happening at local levels. So Brazil has a bumper crop and suddenly you see prices going way down in a place like Colombia, which may be producing the best coffee in the world. It doesn't matter. And so when Azahar started to understand that, they decided that as the premium coffee industry was starting to take off, they could actually change the rules altogether. And so they started from understanding how much it costs the farmers to produce. They created a community of trust. So they would tell the farmer how much people were paid along the entire supply chain, including for a cup of uh, Starbucks coffee, a latte. And then they would negotiate a fixed price with these farmers. Um, but it, of course it took the supply side, the demand side as well. And so companies like Stumptown um, were willing to work with Azahar because over time, in the beginning they were taking a leap of faith, but over time they started to see that, the, that Azahar was producing the best premium coffee that they could find, that their customers were really proud because now with geo um, location, now they can actually trace where the beans are coming from down to the micro lot. And that suddenly you, you were seeing a stakeholder model emerge. And so that while Stumptown isn't a, yet a multi-billion dollar company, these are, are, are growing corporations that are able to start to partner in, in another way. We work in chocolate, which is a hundred billion dollar industry that essentially relies on the, on the work of about 5 million smallholder farming families that make under $2 a day. The big five chocolate companies all understand that the average age of those farmers is 57. That if we do not transform this industry, we're not gonna have any farmers. And chocolate is, demand is only growing. And so it offers a huge opportunity for the moral imagination to rethink 
how that supply chain works. Again, recognizing that you've got many, many stakeholders that aren't fully on board with changing a system that has worked for people for many, many years. We then moved on to the Q&A part of the event, where Jacqueline took questions from our audience, listening in live online. The focus here is in the context of COVID-19. Could this be the moment for a new dawn of moral leadership? When we talk right now about our institutions having run their course, I think what we don't talk enough about is the fact that young people no longer believe in these institutions, but they mostly don't trust the leaders that run these institutions. The leaders feel that trapped by systems, and indeed those systems are oppressive, and yet it's going to take us as leaders to be the ones that change those systems. And so this is the moment. But there's also every act that a leader takes is publicly scrutinized. And the real acts of moral leadership are not during the easy times. They are during the excruciating times. This moment of coronavirus um, is one of those times where every frontline surgeon, doctor is at a point now in countries, certainly in Italy and Spain, where they were making decisions on who lives, who dies. You don't have a good option. And you have to make the decision anyway. And you'll be critiqued for that decision. But if we had leaders who could be transparent and clear and honest with a much greater sense of vulnerability around how they made the decision, I think we would see so much more uh, of getting behind those decisions health and livelihood. Every national leader and in my country, every different governor is making these decisions. Um, And we look around the world and we say, are there any examples? And I look at Angela Merkel or Jacinda Ardern and, and they are making the equally tough decisions, but in ways that have built trust. Leaders, and we're starting to see it in the best, need to recognize their own vulnerability that if there's ever been a time in history to show us that certainty is not always the best approach, um, it is now. And that it is in these times of uncertainty that we need to be driven by our character. Our leaders need to listen more, not try to convince or convert, but from a place of inquiry, understand um, what's happening within their organization. Our leaders need to be very clear, transparent, and honest um, about the decisions they're making, about the losses those decisions will entail. Um, And our leaders have an opportunity to remind us that we're better than we think we are. As much as this moment of crisis is showing us a lot of bad behavior, um, as much as this is creating deep levels of fear and uncertainty amongst all of us, so is it opening up real opportunities for a flourishing that we're all seeing of compassion and generosity. And so I think it's the leader's job to create those narratives that help us see those best sides of ourselves and help us recognize the world that we might be going going into, but not shy away from the losses that it takes, from the hurts that we have, and for the work that we have to do. So that relates to Monica's question. Monica asks, how can we strengthen solidarity in times of isolation, closed borders, and fear for our families and loved ones? 
Hmm. This is where I think, again, going back to narratives, and it's exciting to hear that people are on the line from all over the world. But you know, there are places in the world when we think about crisis that where where families are always in crisis. Um, go into almost any low-income community that's been hit uh, by an external factor, whether it's a cyclone or in the case of the continent of Africa, think about AIDS and Ebola. There is so much for us to learn from the grace and the resilience of Africans across the, the continent as they dealt with just a horrendous disease that literally reduced life expectancy in some countries by 20 years. Um, and so the sense of solidarity is, for me, comes back to re remembering why we're here, which is to serve each other and to recognize that we're all needed to do what we can uh, with who we are and where we are and what we have. And that may be as simple as picking up the phone to see how your neighbor's doing, offering to pick up groceries, or it may be much larger to organize. One of our companies in LA, Los Angeles, has built eight uh, essentially fast food, affordable restaurants in some of the lower income neighborhoods of Los Angeles. And the day that they went on shelter, he thought he could be like every other restaurant and just close down. Um, or he could remember his North Star, which was to get affordable, healthy food to food, people living in food deserts that didn't have access. And so he put a note out on social media and said, anyone who needs a meal, let us know. If you can pay, great, we'll deliver it. If you can't, we'll deliver it anyway. And if you can pay forward, contribute. And within a, a week or so, um, they were able to deliver 160,000 meals. And the governor saw that one way to keep the homeless safe was to partner with hotels. And so every table then partnered with the government so that now they are delivering to the homeless. And by within the next month, probably, they will have delivered a million meals. But this is the flourishing of citizenship. It's mm -hmm. all of these Angelinos that are contributing what they can with from where they are, preserve jobs, take care of the most vulnerable first. And, um, and we need more models like this. That is how we build solidarity, that it will take all of us and we find those opportunities to partner, sometimes with people we used to think might be our enemies. This is the moment. Great. Shelly from the United States and also an alumna of Side Business School asks, vulnerability comes with assurance and acceptance. Have you identified the priority change makers that can plant more seeds if an area of moral revolution is to come? Yeah, you know, someone said this to me yesterday as well. They said, well, you know, it's easy for you to talk about words like dignity and love because you built a company that has served 300 million people. But for my friends who've known me, I've, I've never let go of a vulnerability my whole life. And in a funny way, I actually think that comes from having somehow felt like I was an outsider, maybe growing up as a girl at a time when it wasn't really clear that there were so many roles for girls. And so I never felt so certain that I deserved to win the prize. Um, and when I did win the prize, I would kind of apologize for it half the time and make everybody else feel good. 
and didn't realize that along the way there was a superpower in that. And in a, in a way, I think that in an interdependent world, those individuals who have felt like an outsider, and that can include white men, there are a lot of ways that we feel like outsiders because we carry things on the inside that other people might not see. But for those of us who have felt like outsiders, we've had to learn how to navigate the system that wasn't necessarily set up in ways that would work for us. And in doing that, there was an opportunity to learn what it felt like to be outside the system so that when we interact with those who are outside the system, there may be a more natural empathy and vulnerability. And so if we have confidence and the courage to express that, other people will have an openness to find their better selves. And there may be no big secret right now in this moment of crisis that some of the role models that all of us are pointing to have strong feminine sides or are women. And I've been thinking about why is that? Because I, I started in microfinance with, or institution with some women who then went on to help lead a genocide. And so I'm not one that says women are better than men, but I do think that the opportunity for all of us in an interdependent world is to integrate the feminine and the masculine in a, in a more whole way. And that requires that strength and that audacity, as well as a new humility that has been lacking and has gotten us into a lot of trouble. Without the two, we're lopsided. And so the opportunity is for a vulnerability, but that vulnerability has to be matched with data, science, facts, and a certain level of fearlessness. If there's ever been a moment in my lifetime for us to move to a moral framework rather than one that's based on money, fat power and fame and division, it is now. Because the coronavirus will not be solved unless we put the vulnerable first. We will not be healed unless we heal our prisoners, unless we heal our elderly, unless we heal our poor. And we've also learned how interdependent our systems are that kids in my country are hungry. When you turn the schools down, they're missing meals from the schools. The schools are broken and that leads you to the criminal justice system and that leads you to the broken health system. But more than that, we have to think globally and we're seeing too many of our leaders still thinking competitively. So we've got to go global, we've got to collaborate and we've got to root locally and we've got to learn from each other. So yeah, a lot of people have called me idealistic my whole life. And frankly, I am a proud, pragmatic, determined idealist. And I have never met a cynic who has changed the world. My thanks to Jacqueline Novogratz. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. Listen, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about leadership in extraordinary times, please visit oxfordanswers.org.